Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's our portfolio. You know, we've got more savings deposit money. We'd like to continue how much would you lend us now? And she said, Helen, if you keep investing like that, it's unlimited. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shump and in this episode, we're speaking with self-made millionaire Helen Collier-Cortez. When she's not actively running property seminars, writing best-selling novels or managing her own sizable portfolio, Helen is home with her loving husband and daughter. Having come from an unprivileged background, discover how she managed to build her property empire. Helen Collier-Cotes manages the balanced life in both business and her personal. I do a number of things, but uh, predominantly I am a property investor, uh, a mentor. I'm also a best-selling author, a uh, wife and a fabulous mother. (laughs) She describes her daily schedule and business goals. What I focus on is developing education material and programs to teach investors how to navigate their way through the property market and build a property portfolio following a strategic, disciplined and low-risk way. The industry is fraught with danger and fraught with risk and it's my job to guide people through the process where they come out the other end with great property that suits their strategy, their lifestyle and their time in life. Wow, that is well put and it's so true. There's just so much out there and especially if you don't know where you're going, you can easily go down a rabbit hole and um, it's great that you're putting out great material and education to help people out there. What do you think you find uh, during the day in your work that fulfills you the most? Well, I guess like most people, it's it, fulfillment for me comes from making a difference. So, I love interacting with people. I love talking to investors. I even enjoy writing my blog articles because it gives me an opportunity to answer questions that investors may have. I get contacted by investors uh, regularly. So, uh, it gives me, uh, I guess, ideas for material to write in my blogs. And then, you know, people are often inquiring as to what's my opinion on what's going on in the marketplace. How should investors navigate their way, uh, especially now with the market um, cooling off? Um, They also want to know more about the Banking Royal Commission and what the impact that is having, especially on lending, and what they can be doing in order to get the loan over the line. So um, I find that really fulfilling. Uh, I love it when I'm actually able to, you know, help someone and and have them go, oh, wow, I didn't know that, or oh, great, that makes a difference, or fantastic, I can move forward. So they come to me with a cloud, and hopefully, or the intention is by the time 
time I'm finished, that they've kind of, uh, uh, you know, we've gotten rid of the cloud, opened up possibility and leave them feeling like they've got control back and they've got a way forward. So I, look, that ticks my box, um, all my boxes, um, and it really fills my cup being able to do that day in and day. And I love property, so I can talk about it even underwater. Raised by a single mum in Melbourne, Collier Cotes describes some of the challenges of her childhood. Well, I'm a Melbourne girl, um, born and bred here and uh, as much as I love to travel, I've only ever lived in Melbourne. But as a child, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, you know, single mum, uh, raising the kids on her own, you know, mum did it tough with us kids. And, um, you know, we lived in housing commission flats, which, you know, I remember was not a pleasant part of my childhood. Um, so, yeah, you know, growing up with, with um, you know, with siblings and a single parent is, is challenging. So I take my hat off to any parent that raises children on their own because that's, I know how busy I am and I have, you know, a, a great husband who is a fantastic father and we both really uh, participate in raising our daughter, Alex. So, um, so yeah, it was tough for mum. You know, we, we moved around a bit because we couldn't afford the rent and, you know, we often had to move because we were behind on rent and um, we didn't have a lot, you know, you know, at Christmas time, you know, Christmas would be uh, under the tree. We would get uh, our school uniform quite often um, as our gift, as well as socks and jocks, <laughs> <laughs> underwear, because that was kind of cheap for mum to be able to buy. And, and if we got one toy, that was Christmas. Um, you know, uh, a moment in life I don't often share was when we were living in the Housing Commission flats uh, in Flemington, actually. Um, I remember one year there were the Grey Sisters, so um, nuns living in the building, and they came and gave us a, a basket of food, so just your staples, you know, tea, coffee, sugar, you know, um, that sort of thing. And um, and they... Um, uh, each of us kids got a toy each. I got a doll, and, I, and I'll tell you that was like the best thing ever to have received, um, uh, you know, a present like that. Despite her circumstances, Collier Cotes reflects on how this act has impacted her decisions in life. So I'm a big fan of, um, you know, donating toys and uh, gifts for kids at Christmas time. But you know, it was it, it was made a quite a profound impact uh, that that memory or that moment in life when those um, um, those amazing women just came to the door and, and shared, you know, and gave us some gifts and stuff. So the nuns were, were lovely and very caring and, um, and I think it's partly why today, you know, I have my own charity where, you know, we re- rebuild schools for uh, for kids in third world countries, specifically it's, it's Vanuatu and... Um, yeah, so it's amazing what happens as a kid when you're growing up and um, and how it shapes you as an adult and the choices you make as an adult. After being given a scholarship to a good high school, life still wasn't smooth sailing for her. So again, moved schools. Um, I was fortunate enough when I went to secondary school that I was on a scholarship. 
so the um, well, it's actually a scholarship. So the school that I went to um, had a, a fundraising charity fund. So again, it was a it was an all girls school, uh, Catholic school, and they you know every time they did fundraising, it went towards their uh, this particular fund in which they would pay for underprivileged kids like myself to be given the opportunity to attend the school, and you know in you know we. I look at it. I look back at it now, and I go, "Yeah, it was it was great." But some of my worst memories were going to that school, not because it was a terrible school. It wasn't. It was brilliant. But things that kind of shape you as a kid again is like I had all my school fees paid for. You know, Mum had to find some money to you know buy the uniform, or we bought it secondhand, or she made bought the material and made me my skirts and whatever. But, you know, on civvies days when everyone's going to school casual and mums and dads are driving their kids to school in their BMWs and what have you, I was walking to school. Um, but on civvies days, everyone's wearing designer clothes and I used to deliberately forget to, uh, I used to say, oh, I forgot that it was casual day today so I'd wear my uniform because I really didn't have anything to wear, you know. So it was those sort of things and those, all those extracurriculum things that, as an underprivileged kid, I didn't have the luxury of birthday parties at big events and stuff like that. We couldn't afford, you know, all we got was, you know, mum made a homemade cake and a few candles, family got around, sang a happy birthday. And if you got a little present, then that was great. But, um, you know, it was kind of tough um, going to a, a, you know, a, a private school with all these girls who had the luxury of parents that are uh, were well-to-do. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm grateful that I got that opportunity. Um, but, yeah, there were some tough moments uh, where I kind of went, gee, you know, I didn't think this one through. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, know, you kind of think it's great to give a kid an education, but it's it's another thing when they can't afford the the DEBs and the extra cur- curriculum activities that most kids take for granted. I couldn't attend or couldn't afford to go to school camps and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it had its good and bad moments, but um, mm. yeah. And, yeah. And I guess... Um, um, mum wanted to give you the best possible education and also get you into um, the best chance of actually getting into possibly university and so forth. So I, I think she, you know, did the best that she could as being a yeah, single mum as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, she did. I, I, I certainly commend her for that. And as I said, any woman that raises kids on her own and makes makes a real feast of it, you know, I take my hat off to them because I watched mum work three jobs to try and make ends meet. Um, you know, she was never home because of it and, um, you know, it was tough. But we understood that's what needed to be done. That's what had to happen for us to get through life. So, um, you know, I, like, please don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful I got to go to that school. It's just that if you ask me about childhood memories, it's the negative ones that tend to you know, come to mind. And, you know, when I think about it, I go, wow, you know, Actually, it's amazing how those memories have really shaped me today. And and I guess you're right that um, if I had if I hadn't have had those memories, um, I wouldn't possibly be doing what I'm doing today. So I'm grateful in that respect. Yeah. Mm. And and that's the beauty of everyone's unique story when they grow up because it really helps to understand where and why they actually go through their journey, whether it be in business, property, or, or wherever they they head into. And um, I guess that's part of adversity when we all grow up that we have these to push us through into you know the future parts of our life and lessons we can share with many others, especially our children as well and I totally resonate with that. So, 
After school, um, what happened from there onwards? Did you go out into the workforce or did you continue studies? I continued my studies. Um, it didn't last very long, so I went to uni. And um, that was back in the day when we um, had a recession that we had to have, courtesy of the government at the time, and interest rates went up to 17%. So, again, mum did a great job. She managed to purchase a house of land package um, at the northern suburbs of Melbourne. So we were, you know, she was busy um, working hard to pay the mortgage and and, um, at the time was one of the... Um, unfortunate people who were retrenched when, when I think it was TAA and ANSET and all of that debacle with the airlines occurred. And um, yes, I was retrenched, couldn't find work for quite some time. So I had to quit uni and, uh, and work a couple of jobs just to make ends meet. So I was, um, I was in retail during the day, um, managing stores, and then I was uh, waiting on tables at night, uh, four nights a week to, uh, you know, I guess make ends meet and, and it was just, again, I guess it's that level of resilience. When you realise that the chips are down, you just roll up your sleeves and you get stuck in. You don't you don't kind of get all sooky la-la about it and, and that's something I guess mum's taught me is to be strong and be self-reliant and, and just get on with the job. Don't, don't, you know, whinge about it, just get on with it. So it was just what I did and, um, you know, I did that for for a couple of years until such time as things settled down and interest rates came down and mum found a job again and um, from there I then went, uh, I was still working full-time, quit the second job but then I I went back to uni and that's when I went back and studied um, business. So I did that part-time for six years while working full-time as a mature age student. Yeah, that was hard work. (laughs) After finishing university, things took a bit more time for her career to take off. It didn't deliver for me what I hoped it would deliver. Um, When I was in retail, I found that uh, having been in retail, because I started work fairly young. So even though I was doing, um, studying, you know, doing my year 11 and 12 at this private school, um, as soon as I was old enough to get a part-time job, I did. So I used to work Friday nights and Saturday mornings in a supermarket as a checkout chick um, just to kind of have a little bit of pocket money so I could afford, uh, you know, socialising as, you know, teenagers normally do. You go out for a coffee or a movie and and, and having that little part-time job allowed me to kind of have that little bit of a, a life. Um, and then when, when I... Uh, quit uni and went to full-time work. Well, I was already working in retail. I think I, I went, I was at Meyer or David Jones at the time and um, and they offered me full-time work. So they were happy to take me on at full-time because I was already there as a casual. Um, so it was an easy transition. However, in time, she finally got a break into the corporate industry, which brought about new challenges. Once I was working full-time, uh, I found it really difficult to go from retail into office, working in an office somewhere and kind of getting a break in, in, in the door, getting an opportunity. Um, and as it turned out, a friend of mine worked um, uh, in the in corporate world and was going on maternity leave and managed to get me a uh, contract role whereby I was, you know, taking up a maternity leave uh, position. Um, and then one thing led to another and I managed to secure a role, a full-time role working as a PA in the corporate world. And that was kind of my entree into 
into getting out of retail and into working office hours, which was fantastic. I, I just loved not having to work evenings and weekends and, and Christmas days and all of those sorts of uh, horrid hours that you have in retail and, and just work kind of your Monday to Friday, normal business hours sort of thing. Even though I was doing a, you know, a 50-hour week, I didn't mind it because it wasn't late nights and weekends. So even though I you know, was doing my business degree, Unfortunately, the corporate world that I was in was very male-dominated, and if you started off as a PA, it was again, it was kind of hard to break the mould, but it took me a little while, and I eventually kind of got out of that PA role and into working in the commercial division, so um, I was doing you know, admin, um, and, and eventually I moved into um, IT and, you know, working with some software and then I was training in that software. So I was going out to clients and training them and rolling out the software for the company that I was working for at the time. So finally got my progression. But by the time I quit the corporate job, I kind of made it in real estate as far as building a property portfolio that I didn't need to keep the corporate job anymore. So my studies, I guess, taught me more about business acumen and and gave me business understanding, which was very useful when I went into business for myself. Collier Cocktes believes working her way up from a PA and admin roles and into high-level roles gave her valuable experience. And I learned so much and I did have, um, you know, I worked at, at the senior levels as well. So watching how general managers, group general managers operate, managing directors and the board and all of that kind of uh, would not have gotten that level of exposure had I not had those uh, those roles. So um, now when I run a board, it's, you know, I kind of follow the principles I learned all the way back then. So um, it has given me, you're right, insight and opportunity to apply in my life today. Coming up after the break, hear about how Collier Cotes hit some more roadblocks before success. I was renting but I had a car loan so I borrowed money for a car, uh, making payments on that. I um, had credit card debt, I had speeding tickets. How she teaches her daughter about money. Well, mum and dad play the bank so she's got a limit of $10 that she can borrow and then she has three weeks in which to pay it back. Before hearing about how Collier Cotes started out in property investment. Well, this particular mentor said, yes, there are cash flow deals. You need to go hunting for them. They're harder to come by, but, you know, go and have a look. All this and much more after the break. I'm Tyrone Sharp and you're listening to Property Investory. Collier Cotes was not always on top of her finances even getting herself into some serious debt in her 20s. My hubby and I were both working in the corporate world um, and we couldn't really afford much at the time. My husband at the time was going through a divorce and um, and I was just loaded up with a whole lot of bad debt. You know, I didn't... Again, coming from a poor family, we didn't have a lot of money to go around. So we kind of had this saying, and, and I'm sure a lot of people will relate to this, but I grew up with a, with a philosophy of you borrowed from St. Paul to pay St. Peter, and then you borrowed from St. Peter to pay back St. Paul. 
they were my money management skills. That's <laughs> what, what I was taught. <laughs> so borrowing and paying back was just kind of what we did and how we survived life. So in my 20s, when I finally got out in the big wide world on my own, I was renting, but I had a car loan, so I borrowed money for a car, uh, making payments on that. I um, had credit card debt. I had speeding tickets. Yes, something new about me. I had a lead foot. Yes. <laughs> I had lots of parking tickets. I was so disrespectful. I parked wherever I wanted to park. Um, and I just racked up a lot of bills. Even um, even I owed money to Telstra. I owed money everywhere. It was ridiculous. In fact, I look back and it was it's quite embarrassing, but that was just the reality of my life at the time. So um, I was... And I also had an attitude of, hey, I work hard for the money, um, therefore I'm allowed to spend it and go shopping. So shopping was my hobby and working in the city, I would go shopping regularly um, during my lunch breaks <laughs> if the sales were on. And I just continued to rack up credit card debt until I just kind of got to the end of my 20s and went, well, let me look at what I've done. Let me look at what I've got. Let me take stock of my life. And I went, well, I haven't traveled globally like so many 20-something-year-olds do. Um, I've just spent my 20s working, working hard and paying back debt. And and I kind of went, well, that's that's not a good position to be in. What happens if I want to get married, have children? What am I going to do with all this debt add to it? And it just, I didn't, it didn't feel good. She reveals the real low point of this time for her that turned into a moment that changed her life. I think the real clincher for me was when um, I had this debt collector, um, his, he was six foot four, knock on my door, Whoa. wanting to repossess my car. And and it was a, a holy moly moment, let me assure you. <laughs> but uh, he's standing at the door and goes, I'm here to collect your car, I need your car keys, please. Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, excuse me? <laughs> he goes, yep, you're, you're behind on your payments by X amount. Unless you want to give me a check right now, you need to give me your car keys. Wow. And I was just like, oh. What the hell do I do with that? And and where where I was, there's no public transport. So I'd have to walk an hour to a bus to then get a bus to a tram, which would be another hour, you know, to get to where I needed to go. Wow. And so I, it was just not possible because I had a few occasions where the car was being serviced or out of action that I had to do that. So I knew what the alternative was. And, and um, it was just a shock that um, I invited him in, made him a cup of coffee, and I have to tell you that that life lesson that that man taught me on the day, I now still teach people today. And it was basically a debt reduction strategy that I not only catch up on my car repayments, but I pay off all my debt, and he showed me how to do it. And within 12 months, I got myself out of a hole. Initially intimidated by this tall debt collector, he gave her invaluable financial advice that allowed her to eventually start her property journey. He turned out to be a really lovely man. So we had a bit of a chat. I invited him in. I made him a cup of coffee. And the next thing I know, he said, you got pen and paper? Sure. Grabbed some uh, paper and gave him a pen. And he goes, tell me all your debts. And, you know, I talked him through everything and I was just grabbing some statements so I knew what balances were, etc. And he drafted it out on a bit of paper and he goes, if you can be disciplined and start paying this off, 
um, and pay them off one at a time and just focus on one at a time but keep the minimum repayments on the rest and pay down extra on one debt at a time, he said, you'll have this cleared very quickly. And and he said, and, you know, by doing this, he said, you know, we, we rejigged and renegotiated the repayments on the car so that not only do I make payments, but I, you know, eventually sort of gave myself some breathing space. So he helped me in that, in that area, but also showed me how to clear the rest of the debts. Gosh. So from there, um, yeah, he, he really changed my life. It was amazing, amazing. That, that is amazing. And if it wasn't for that moment, um, I wonder where, where your life would have headed um, continuously from there. So More debt. Mm. I probably would have ended up um, with a bad credit file and maybe bankrupt. Having learnt from her own mistakes being uneducated about money, Kolia Cortes is determined to teach her daughter financial responsibility. It's not taught at schools, you know. I mean, I've asked the teacher, you know, what do you teach the kids about money? They don't. They teach them how to count, subtract, multiply, <laughs> but there's no real understanding of money and interest and, 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 you know, being entrepreneurial. I mean, they might get them to run a cake store or whatever, but there's no real education around money. So as a parent, believe me, it's, it's a priority uh, to teach our daughter um, you know, strategies around money. So she doesn't get pocket money. She has to earn her money by doing jobs around the house, mowing the lawn, taking the bins out. Uh, every job has a different amount of earnings for her. And then once she, if she spends all her money once she's earned it and she wants more, well, mum and dad play the bank. So she's got a limit of $10 that she can borrow. And then she has three weeks in which to pay it back. Now, if she doesn't pay it back at the end of the three weeks, then she gets charged 50 cents a week in interest. I know that might sound really harsh right now, Tyrone, but let it's, me tell it's you. It's not. It's the real effective. life. It is very <laughs> it's effective. Real it's real life. You know, you're exactly. just doing a smaller scale, which is amazing. <laughs> plan is by the time she's an adult and gets a credit card, she doesn't do what most of us do, which is go and rack up debt on credit card and then make minimum repayments and pay all that interest. She already understands that by the time she um, three weeks comes up and interest is due, um, what she's really adamant about is... Um, is not paying interest. So straight away, she's like, Mom, give me some jobs to do because, you know, I don't want to pay interest. I want to pay off the debt. So, you know, I and mean, she's only nine, but, you know, we're going on holidays um, uh, in a little while and um, she already is now asking to do jobs so that she can earn some uh, extra money for spending money on her holiday because um, on one of our holidays this year when um, on our last holiday, she didn't take her pocket money or her money that she'd saved up and uh, she overspent. So because she overspent, she didn't get any more and she had to go without. You know, here we are out on a holiday where we're buying souvenirs and things and she couldn't have anything and and we had to be uh, hey, it was that was a tough gift to try and implement that one, I must say. But we really needed her to get the lesson that, hey, kid, you know, if you're going to go on holidays, take some of your money with you so you can buy toys or souvenirs or whatever you want um, and not overspend. Spend what you can afford. So uh, she's been busy 
the last few weeks, saving every penny. The tooth fairy's even been in our house four times in the last <laughs> month, and she's saving every penny of it for the next holiday, which is really fantastic. So although they're hard conversations to sometimes have with your kid, you feel like a terrible parent, um, it's paying dividends. And if in the end she becomes a good money manager, then I've done my job. Kali Cotes is teaching her daughter lifelong skills and concepts that many adults struggle with. She understands the principle of interest now that it's money, you know, you're giving away to a, the bank. Um, you know, you have to go and earn that extra money to pay it, whereas you're better off just, you know, paying down the debt before the due date. She describes the origins of her desire to enter into property investment. After I'd cleaned up all of my debts, um, Hubby had gone through and finalised his divorce at that point. So between the two of us, we were living on my income. So my income was paying the the bills and the rent and, and all of that. And we were saving his money. So we saved his money as deposits. And um, and then collectively, um, because we were renting and we pretty much had um, paid off all our debts, um, we were able to save a lot of money. And that's what sort of started the journey. We um, were sitting around on a camping trip because we couldn't afford to travel. So camping was all we could do back then. <laughs> that's and, a nice, um, nice to do though. Yeah, it is. Camping is, is good fun. I, I didn't like the blow-up mattress. By golly gee, I wouldn't do that again. But <laughs> I, I was sick of that. I felt like I was sleeping on the floor. But um, <laughs> um, but the, the thing is, we were sitting around a campfire. We were up at, um, on the border of Victoria, New South Wales, and, and it was during the June long weekend in Victoria, and uh, it was freezing cold. So we're sitting around a campfire and uh, enjoying a glass of red wine and... Um, you know, as as kind of a new couple, we were talking about kids. Do we have kids? Do we, you know, when? Do we, you know, whatever. And and at the same time, you know, we talked about getting married and, and we talked about our retirement. And what I had done on that particular camping trip was I took with me our superannuation uh, statements and we talked about, you know, what would retirement look like? When do we want to retire? How much would we retire on? And I had, because I had the statements there and a calculator, I kind of ran the numbers. And between the two of us, we would have retired on a $28,000 a year income. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes, some months I spend that uh, in a month. So to have that, to live off for an entire year, just didn't appeal to us at all. And that was kind of the uh aha moment that had us go, all right, well, what else are we going to do? I mean, we're both working uh, full-time, we work hard, we're saving money, but we're not just going to contribute to super and expect that to be enough in retirement. We need to now take some action ourselves. So it started the journey of looking around. Um, We we decided we weren't interested in shares because we didn't know enough about them. We didn't want to start a business because we didn't want to give up our corporate jobs and our opportunity to save. Um, And so property was kind of really the, the one we were both really keen on. After a small mishap in her first property purchase, she was determined to get educated in purchasing and investment strategies. So we started with reading books and, you know, buying magazines, property magazines, um, going to seminars, free seminars and, and one thing led to another and we realised, you know what, we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and we really don't know what we're doing. And in fact, when we bought our first home to live in, I didn't realise 
that there was this thing called stamp duty. So not only did we save for a deposit, but we had to pay stamp duty and we didn't have enough saved. So our family member lent us the balance to pay the government all this stamp duty, which I was horrified about. (laughs) However, we kind of gave us that moment of, oh, holy moly, we really should learn about this. So that's when we... um, uh, did a uh, education course and then we hired a mentor to guide us through the process. That started the journey and, you know, seven and a half years later, I retired from the corporate world and, and I've been following my passion ever since. Despite having many properties at this point, Colleen Cortez reveals one of the biggest roadblocks in growing her investment portfolio. I was in the bank. Yeah. I won't men- mention which bank. It was one of the four majors. We had what they called a personal banker. So when you're kind of at a certain level with borrowings within a bank, they sometimes allocate you a private, you know, personal lender, banker, whatever they call them. It's all a bit of a fast in my view. But anyway, we're sitting there and we, Ed and I had continued to save. So even though we were saving and, um, you know, using the savings as deposit money for the next investment, we got to a point where we purchased six properties and we had lots of equity and deposit money and we were ready to go again we're thinking great so we're sitting in her office and um, we kind of said look we'd really like to buy another property um, you know we've got the deposit it's in this account blah 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 um, you know how much will you lend us and she looked at what we had and she said well nothing we can't lend you any money and I was like what do you mean but we've got a deposit you know, we're still saving Ed's um, income, you know, and, and living off mine. We kept our expenses really low. That was a key learning, actually. Keeping your expenses low and not increasing the lifestyle with the number of properties um, is a key thing to being able to keep borrowing. So I didn't know that at the time, though, but I do now. Um, so with that, by keeping the expenses low, even though she said we couldn't borrow, I kind of went, well, you know, that's not really good enough. And I said, well, why can't we? She said, you're too rent reliant, uh, which means we were heavily negatively geared. So if something were to happen to us and we lost our jobs, we would have been in Struggle Street, even though we had a buffer in place and our expenses were low. The bank saw it as a risk. So anyway, we walked out of there disappointed and, and both Ed and I were like, nah, this is not good enough. We, we've got to find a way. Eventually, she and her husband found the answer to their lending problem. We started going to more seminars. We started interviewing finance brokers. Anyone who had more properties than us would ask questions and just kept picking people's brains to try and find out what we needed to do. And so we met a, um, uh, another mentor at the time and he said, Helen, what you need is cash flow. And I go, well, what do you mean I need cash flow? Because you need, it, you need to increase either your income um, you need to get income from somewhere or you can even buy cash flow properties. And back in the day when we were investing, negatively geared blue chip properties were the only things to invest in. If you said cash flow to, uh, to some people, they were like, oh no, cash flow don't exist. So I was like, okay, all right. Well, this particular mentor said, yes, there are cash flow deals. You need to go hunting for them. They're harder to come by. But, you know, go and have a look. So I literally sat down uh, with a map of Australia. He gave me some ideas around where to look. So I started looking in regional areas. And um, the first property we found was $96,500 and it was renting for $220 a week. 
Yep, that's positive cash flow. Yep, that's positive cash flow, all right. <laughs> and so um, 96000 you know, we had like a $50,000 deposit because that's kind of the deposit we were borrowing at 90%. So we needed 50000 for every property we were buying. So we had this big deposit, but for a $96,000 property, you know, we had we, we kind of got excited thinking, okay, we've got a huge deposit. So even if the bank insists that we need a bigger deposit, we had it. So we kind of felt what, that we were good to go. Anyway, went back to the personal banker and uh, sat at her desk and said, look, we found this deal. Uh, it's 96500 It rents for two twenty. Um, you know, would you lend us the money for this? And she looked at it and she said, well, yes, we would. So it was like, great, okay, fantastic. So we did the deal. It was like, you know, Ed and I would just hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, sign the documents before they changed their mind. And then um, bought that property. As soon as we settled, we increased the rent to $230 a week. So we went back to the bank and said, look, we've got some, you know, uh, we've got our tax returns at that point as well. So they were nice and healthy. So that went towards deposit money. We went back to the bank and said, look, we'd like to buy um, another cash flow property. Um, you know, would you lend us more money for, you know, would you lend us the money for them? And she said, you know what, if you're buying like this, then yes, we would. And so much so, from the from the time we signed up the first deal, we bought six in six weeks. Oh. We just went bang, 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 bang. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. It was paper warfare back, you know, yeah, it was just applications going everywhere. But what it did was the positive cash flow that we received from those six properties balanced off the six negatively geared properties that Ed's income was sustaining and supporting. The dynamic of her portfolio became very interesting and unique, with half her portfolio paying off the other half. So the property portfolio was now neutral. And, and Ed's income was completely being saved now. It wasn't going towards mortgages. So as you can imagine, our, our savings again skyrocketed because it wasn't we weren't covering off mortgages or rates or anything. The positive cash flow properties were paying for the negatively geared ones. So we went back to the bank and this is where the lesson came in. And I said to her, okay, great. Now we've bought these six, you know, here's our portfolio how much would you lend us now? Because we've got more, you know, we've got more savings deposit money. We'd like to continue. How much would you lend us now? And she said, Helen, if you keep investing like that, it's unlimited. So the learning there was not to go heavily negatively geared, to have a combination of cash flow and negative, keep the portfolio balanced. And so our incomes were just used as savings and buffer. So if anything happened, we had plenty of buffer to sustain ourselves. So that's when we went on and, you know, continued to buy. And now um, I've, I've we've had up to 30 properties at one time where we've sold a few now, but we continued up to 30 properties. So it can be done. And, you know, I've got I've got students now that are still buying, even in the current market, even even with all the new rules of finance, um, you know, are buying, you know, four, five, six properties, even, even in 2018, you know, 2019, it's still happening. Join us on a future episode of Property Invest Story, where we hear Helen Collier-Kofter's investment strategies. So it's not about just capital growth and just cash flow. It's got to be a combination of both. Her future investment plans. But yes, I still want to continue to buy property, but they'll be very strategic properties now and 
because of um, what I've created over the years, um, it's more likely that I'll be my own banker. As she shares more about her daily life and habits. I like, you know, my daily ritual is keeping to-do lists where I can tick boxes. Um, That kind of keeps me on track. Tune in for all of this and more in a future episode on Property Investory.